You're listening to the Living with Licensing podcast, brought to you by Asgard Media. L-I-C-E-N-S-I-N-G, news and info, stuff is happening, here's the place you've got to go, for the cool kids in the know. Now here's your host, Kelvin Gardner. So welcome to this week's guest, Trudy Haywood. Hello, Kelvin. Good morning, Trudy. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you, now that it's cooled down a bit. Yeah, it's a good day to be in the studio recording podcasts, I think. Exactly. So tell me a little bit about what you're doing right now before I get into your history, including, I guess, one of the most cleverly worked out company names I've come across in licensing. Brand War, do you like it? A lot of people don't get it straight away, but <laughs> uh, it's the name Randizi and Hayward. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I'm the ca- co-founder of Brand Ward Services Limited, along with Jean-Philippe Randizi. Um, who was actually my boss for 10 years whilst I was at Nickelodeon and then ITV. You must have been a decent boss then. <laughs> well, let's just say we found a good way of working together and we certainly did work well together, yes. Great. So what services is Brandward offering? Um, so we offer companies um, global consultancy and brand management services Typically, they're brand owners, um, IP creators, producers who have IP and don't really know how to monetize it. Um, We also offer, I'd say, a boutique licensing agency service in the UK. So what we do is we, we help IP owners, creators and producers, as I said, to roll out their IP globally, advising on which broadcasters, platforms, markets they should prioritize to monetize their ip Um, we can also advise on uh, the content shaping the content if they want to monetize it from a cp perspective so certain things adding certain things in that we know will resonate so a real mixture of your skills and experience and john phillips too yeah that's exactly it because jean philippe obviously has the content and the broadcast experience and i have the global agent management and the uk licensing experience so we can basically offer a service from end to end now so to get where you are today there's a lot of history behind that i know so please tell us a little bit about your origins and i mean you come from bedford as i recall yep yep so i so i live in bedford and i've commuted to london um for a long time actually Um, I started commuting to London when I was in my early 20s when I worked for the National Press and then um, I moved back to Bedford and moved around a little bit. I started my licensing career, um, well shall I start by telling you what I want, I I wanted to be a policewoman actually when I was still at school, Um, so that was the route I was following and then I realised actually I've got a... a (laughs) a gift of the gab and took after my mother and decided actually that sales would be a more lucrative career which it has turned out to be um so so then i started down sort of like the sales route in local radio local press national press and then i think talking about local press for anybody under 30 listening to this they probably wouldn't have any idea how big local newspaper advertising was in the previous decades You can confirm that, I guess. Yeah, it was absolutely big, um, particularly in the recruitment 
category and classified category. So I started my days working on Bedshire on Sunday, which was a local newspaper, which was hugely, hugely popular. But nonetheless, a great training in sales, I would have thought, for later on. It certainly was, because when I went international press, I had to do like a 100 cold calls a day on the Hmm. telephone, and it was all scripted. So it was was a good... it was very good training and particularly for the licensing industry as well because a lot of the licensing industry tend to recruit sort of marketeers rather than yeah, salespeople. Yeah. yeah and cold calling is a tough gig if you've done it before not everyone can do it yeah exactly it really is <laughs> and then you had a stint in radio too had a stint in local radio yeah so that was that was good fun actually um and when was that when roughly were you at Chilton Radio oh my goodness me now you're asking so I would have been uh that was about 35 years ago Uh, I've got to work my arithmetic on this that period sometime in the 1980s I've just picked up on that because in the same period I did an interview on Chilton Radio and I was a marketing director at Panini on our football stickers so we probably overlapped a little bit well, I do remember sitting in the Horizon radio offices and seeing you in your office at Merlin. They were around the corner from the old Horizon. All of those radio stations are part of Global, is it? It's Global Radio yeah, now, and yeah, Chilton's right. known as Heart. So now a national newspaper, and that brought you back to London, and then something happened to move you into licensing. Uh, so how did that actually come about? Yeah, so um, my mother at that time was buying licenses for a packaging company. She worked in Timware and she was working with Jane Evans, who was MD of Beanstalk Europe, and they had the Coca-Cola rights in Europe. And my mum kept telling me about, because the thing is, radio is really good fun. So I thought, I'm never going to find anything that is as good fun as, as radio. And my mum kept saying, oh, you know, licensing, it's really good fun. And there's loads of awards and loads of you know, <laughs> great dinners and functions that you can go to. Well, I've heard a few introductions to licensing. I think you're the first one who got it through parental blessing. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so anyway, she put me in touch with Jane. And Jane Beanstalk Europe was actually based in Wiltshire at the time because that was where, where Jane resided. And um, so I went down to Wiltshire from Bedford and was interviewed. And basically, Jane said, anybody that can sell radio, which isn't a tangible (laughs) product, is like the theatre of the mind, can sell licences. So um, they had Bikermise from Mars that they were launching at the time and Coca-Cola. But they needed somebody that was more sales focused to yeah, yeah. to lead on the Biker Mice from Mars licensing program. So she offered me the job. I relocated down to Wiltshire. And um, yeah, that was the start of my, my licensing career 26 years ago. So coming back from that very, you could say, hard sales background in radio and local newspaper, what was the main difference when you were reaching out to potential licensees for the first time? Um, Well, the difference was that I wasn't having to do 100 calls a day, but I did actually take the same sales approach. So that was really, I think, what made 
me successful in the role that I was just reached because Jane gave me a sort of like a half an hour immersion into licensing. This is how you do it. And at the time they were like 8% um, royalty rates yeah, and you yeah. calculate, you know, you get, you get a forecast from them and then you divide it by two and you'll take a percentage of that as an advance and, and sort of that was it really. Um, so I just literally phoned like all the companies and asked for a meeting and said, I'm new to licensing. I wondered if you could spare me an hour where I can come in and you can tell me about your business and I can tell you about what we do at Beanstalk. And I just started getting out and seeing, you know, all these companies. But at the time it was very different because mm -hmm. you could sell any license to any company and you were guaranteed to get it listed by retailers. Right, just let's pause there for a second, Trudy, because that's a remarkable statement you just made compared to licensing in 2020. Yeah, yeah, it's totally, totally different landscape. Uh, you could probably do an hour explaining this, I'm sure, but in a nutshell, is the difference simply the breadth of licensed properties available or, or the shrinking of the retail platform? Yeah, shrinking of retail. Um, also, don't forget the landscape's changed in terms of broadcast platforms now. So whereas you just had the four channels back then, yeah, um, yeah. so you had bigger audiences, bigger reach. Now it's very much more diluted. Retailers aren't taking the risk anymore. So they are really only supporting like the top five brands. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's the same number of properties for sure, if not more. Um, but they're just not getting away in the same way that they they used to. Um, I'm sure if Peppa Pig launched now, it wouldn't be as successful as it has been because I I recall having a conversation with Mike Smith at the time who was at E1 leading the licensing program for Peppa Pig and it was just after um, Dora was, be was hitting the big time and he said, how do I get Peppa Pig supported? And this was three years into the program. He said, I can't give it away. Yeah, we've discussed Peppa on previous podcasts and the consensus is that in the end, the three to four year delay they suffered actually helped them in the long term, but it wasn't their own choice. Happened yeah, exactly, <laughs> because it would have had more penetration and traction yeah, in yeah. the market for sure, exactly. yeah. Going back to your days with Jane then, Biker Mice and Mars was also a very interesting property. My recollection as a licensee myself, I recall in my Merlin days, uh, apart from Italy, and it sounds like your success in the UK, Biker Mouse was an abject lesson in one of the things I often say, which is you can come up with the second best property in the history of licensing. And if unfortunately you launch it a week after the first best property in the history of licensing, you can do no business whatsoever. And to a certain extent, you were slogging it out with what was the big beast of the mid 1990s Power Rangers. Exactly, we were indeed, yes. Yeah. So Power Rangers was launching simultaneously. And also the other property that was out at the time was Street Sharks. Mm -hmm. um, so Michael Eve of Trigger Licensing at the time, I yeah, think, yeah. who was representing those brands did very well out of, uh, out of the UK market with Power Rangers and Street Sharks. So Biker Mice got off to a great start. We had some like 40 licensees. We got the product listed, um, toy options. Now character options had the master toy at, at, at the time. And um, they, they did very well out of it. In fact, they floated their company on the back of the success of Biker Mice. Yeah, not bad, yeah, not, not bad. bad at all. 
So it was one of those properties that really did well in toys and did okay in the periphery categories, but didn't set the world alight just because it was competing against Power Rangers and Street Sharks. Power Rangers in particular was one of those once every 10 year type properties that just come out of left field. Yeah, exactly. And still going to this day, in fact, isn't it something like 27 consecutive series on American TV? An amazing fact. Yeah, I know. Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. And of course, the thing was as well, it was it was really the first sort of like property that was a little bit violent or perceived to be a little bit violent, um, which is what I used to use, you know, against a bike mice from Mars was a softer option. But unfortunately, the kids just loved it. So, <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess that mould had been broken and decayed before by the original Ninja Turtles or as they were known in the UK for the region just raised uh, hero turtles. So let's go forward a little bit because you moved closer to home again and started working in London. Yeah, so then I moved after four years, I moved back to Bedford um, and I started working at Copyright Promotions, um, yes. which was a fantastic experience. Um, I really enjoyed working with Richard Cully and David Cardwell um, and Bloom, uh, Kirk Bloom Garden was there at the time as well. It was a really fantastic team and they were the leading licensing agency in the UK and then obviously soon to be Europe because they just set up their European network as well. That's right. And in fact, they've just won uh, Licensing Agency of the Year, the licensing awards. So still going strong. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's a very different company now than it was then. Um, and... You know, again, because, you know, they, they well, they had a huge portfolio, which I know they have a considerable portfolio now, but it was sort of like you took out of your bag. Well, what can I offer you today? You know, the list was like 15 <laughs> yeah. strong properties. Indeed, um, yeah. The biggest one, of course, being Star Wars. So this would have been the prequels. Episode, called, episode right? one, yeah. episode one, The Phantom Menace. Yep. Um, so... I know you'd say, oh, God, you worked on Star Wars. That must have been easy. <laughs> well, yes, it was. But actually, it, it, it was the start of the prequels. And, um, you know, it hadn't... Classic had been a long time before. That's correct. So yeah, there was an expectation before. based on, you know, the classic and how well that had performed. Was it a particular challenge at the time? I recall... That period quite well and classic had established itself in the united states much more than anywhere else so expectations for the uk and europe were probably high from lucasfilm but nonetheless a challenge for you and the team there yeah exactly that 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 was the, that was the thing and um classic hadn't been as successful but there still was a huge demand and actually i don't think the phantom menace lived up to the expectation but that wasn't in terms of did it perform yes it did perform but it didn't perform at the huge overinflated level that lucasfilm had expected i think it's also fair to say trudy that some licensees were literally throwing money at it to get the rights they were but it wasn't just that kelvin i mean i i remember i was securing deals with the highest level of royalties that i have ever seen and done and have never been repeated because of course what happened was then the margins were eroded yeah, and a lot yeah. of and a lot of companies that you know committed to too much stock 
with a high royalty. There were unfortunately a couple of casualties as well. Yeah, some historic ones, so fantastic to be a part of, but in business terms, nonetheless a tricky proposition to deal with such a highly anticipated property. And in the end, as you say, in movie terms, most of the fans felt it didn't quite deliver. Exactly, but of course it's gone on and it's built and it's a huge, huge franchise and will continue to be a huge franchise. But that really was the start of it 22 years ago. And I remember it was 22 years ago because I was pregnant with my son who's <laughs> coming up for 22 and I was hugely pregnant, running around, you know, doing all of these Star Wars deals. And But it was fantastic fun, really fun. I, I, I really loved my time at, at CPL. So you decided to move on to another agency at that time? Yeah, so um, I then um, moved on to Entertainment Rights, um, which were a fairly new dynamic company. And um, we relaunched Basil Brush and Postman Pat whilst I was there. And we also acquired Link Licensing and Link Licensing was owned by a very well-known person, you know, at that time, Claire Derry, and um, they had Barbie and had been hugely successful with Barbie. So Barbie came into into the fold at ER. Interesting that such a major international brand was with an agency at all, really. Yeah, they then took it in-house shortly after that, actually. Um, so they set up their team in-house. But I think it had been managed so well by Link that they, they kept it there. And they did an amazing job with it. Um, but it was shortly after that they then took the rights in-house and set up their own merch team. And you also worked on Mr Bean? Worked on Mr Bean, yeah. We pitched, the, we pitched for the rights um, whilst at ER um, to Tiger Aspect and um, we secured them, which was great because obviously ER was a fairly unknown company at that time. And that was another great property to work on. That was the animated series. Yes, I recall that launch, Trudy, because I was at it myself as a prospective licensee. And I was sitting next to a gentleman called uh, Nadim Sahawi, who I believe is now a senior member of the government, but at the time was selling T-shirts for Geoffrey Archer. I guess after that, the phase of your career you're most known for is your days at Nickelodeon, Viacom, as they're now called. Do you want to take us to that period? Yeah, so basically... Um... Jean-Philippe approached me whilst I was at ER um, to talk to him about a newly created role um, at Nickelodeon to set up the UK licensing business because at that time all of the rights actually had been with um, agents and they were taking those rights in-house so the likes of Rugrats and Wild Thornberries. Um, they were taking the rights in-house and, uh, and on the back of what seemed to be coming through as a potential success of Spongebob, mm. um, they, they wanted to obviously set up their own, their own licensing team. So when I started at Nick UK, we had a handful of licensees and revenue of about £350,000. So um, I was at... I was at Nickelodeon, well, in different guises. So I moved over to the channel business. I worked in the Viacom European team. I then went back into the UK and um, built SpongeBob and Dora. Yeah. So SpongeBob became an 80 million um, pound brand at retail and Dora the Explorer became a 100 million pound retail brand. Yeah, the big properties at the time. 
yeah, it was. And um, it did actually get the coveted position of um, preschool property of the year in, I think it was 2008. Mm -hmm. um, but the thing was, you know, back then, I was literally given, it was me, and I was given one extra resource, which right, I right. took as a, a PA, actually, because I thought, well, I can do the sales, yeah, yeah. Um, which I did. And then, and then after a year when things were going great guns and things were really ramping up, I went cap in hand to Jean-Philippe and begged, stole and borrowed to get an extra <laughs> resource, um, which, I, which John Vasta then joined me. So there was literally like just the two of us on sales supported by um, a PA. And then I think a year or so after that, we got an additional resource. So Ashley Holman joined us. Okay. okay. So Ashley, John and yourself, of course, you've all gone on to run your own businesses. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that, you know, that was a good training ground. Nick was a good, good training ground. Um, and, you know, we, we did have a great portfolio. And, of course, they went on to have an even bigger and better portfolio and a much bigger team. So I think the Nick that I was working for back then, which was 12 years ago, mm -hmm. um, is a very different Nick to what it is now. Because also the thing is, we were small enough back then to not really be on the radar per se, so we could manage our own business, yeah, yeah. whereas now it's become a very global business. Because as soon as you start having a meaningful revenue line, you, you know, everybody wants a piece of it. <laughs> and it becomes a vital part of the overall company's revenue, whereas, as you said, it was probably seen as additional money in your early days there. Yeah, exactly, it was. So we were able to run it as we wanted to locally, and, you know, of course, we had reporting lines and we worked into the US team, but we were able to make decisions locally and, and drive the business locally, which I yep, think yep. helped to establish and build it at that time. I think you're right. And of course, nowadays, Nickelodeon changed their name to Viacom CBS. It's definitely a big part of the licensing work, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So moving a little bit more recently, after... Nickelodeon, you and Jean-Philippe were seemed to be pretty joined at the hip by that time. Well, we'd been through quite a lot together at Nick in terms of setting up that business. And then he he left and went to join ITV. And sort of three or four, four months later, um, he asked if I would join him and do a pretty similar thing at ITV that we'd done at Nick in terms of setting up the business. Because just as I joined ITV, a lot of the business that had been moved over to the commercial team because it was a lot of the adult ITV shows and they're better monetized with sponsors um, rather than, you know, li licensing yes, per se. Yes, so, um, so we were starting the business from scratch in essence again. And um, so it was working with the kids portfolio. So then we were defined as kids. Yep, and yep. It, it was taking a look at the Jerry Anderson portfolio and, of course, the natural one there to be reimagined was Thunderbirds. So you, you weren't a CPLG when Thunderbirds was revived for the first time? No, I came just after that. Right. Well, I say just after. It was two or three, two or three years after that huge success yep, at CPL. Yep. Yeah. Reimagining Thunderbirds was never going to be easy, was it? It wasn't, no, because, I mean, we had to look at, you know, the characters... Um, the, so the whole aesthetic 
um, even the vehicles needed to be updated, what did the characters wear, it was that whole thing. And, and the great thing about ITV, uh, because when, when I was at Nickelodeon, I was fairly pigeonholed into licensing and merchandise. And yes, you had conversations internally about when, when, I, when I became part of the European team about where the TV was being placed, is that the best channel to, mon you know, to, to monetize the brand? I hadn't really had that much exposure to the TV and content um, uh, divisions. Mm -hmm. So at ITV, I um, was totally involved in the creative, working with um, production teams and placing the content, working with the TV sales team. So I had a lot more visibility and exposure to that side of the business as well as obviously the licensing. Yeah, yeah. Which has helped with Brand Ward because I have a good understanding of that side of things now. So your work started to overlap a bit more with Jean Philippe's when you were in that role. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I had a much more global role at uh, at ITV as well. So do you enjoy that part of the work then, the international aspect? I have enjoyed um, traveling to China and Japan and and learning about those markets because they are very different. And having a good, a much better understanding of, you know, global licensing rather than just UK and how yeah, some yeah. of the decisions you make can determine, you know, the, where you take your your program. Yes, of course. Um, so I've got much more of a holistic view rather than if I think back to my Nick days, it's like, well, what does this mean to me in the UK? Yes, of course. Yeah. So Trudy, to wrap up today. With all of the guests we have on Living With Licensing, we're interested in asking you if you could just tell us what, in your view, not necessarily the most successful, but what would you describe as the three best properties that you've worked on in your career? Well, uh, the three that I'm going to say are actually probably the biggest properties, but that's not why I'm, I'm, I'm choosing them. It's be because at that time they weren't the biggest and, and the best, but... Star Wars was definitely um, the most interesting property to learn or to, to work on because um, it, was, it was new at that time and it really shaped licensing in terms of, you know, deals, how to structure deals and having visibi visibility of P&Ls and everything. Mm, so yes, I yes. learned a lot from that. Um, but then I have to say Dora the Explorer and Spongebob because Dora the Explorer, because it was the first property to launch just on cable and satellite. Which was brand new at the time and a difficult sell, I'd imagine. Yeah, it really was. It was unheard of. And it was actually Argos that supported us and Fisher Price. And they took three Dora the Explorer SKUs and then the rest is history. Um, but it was the first of its time to launch on, on, on a cable and satellite platform. Um, and SpongeBob, and SpongeBob because it wasn't the biggest toy play. It was a property that cut through primarily on in the soft line category. Mm -hmm. um, so we did a DTR with New Look. And at that time, New Look were, you could almost say, the Primark of the era. That, that is that is correct, yeah. 
So um, that so we basically launched SpongeBob in the UK on the back of that DTR with New Look because it was so successful. It did thirty million at retail. Amazing, amazing. And um, so that's why I've chosen those three, not because they were the biggest in terms of revenue, but because actually they had their own challenges, which now you would think, oh, what, that must have been the easiest sell ever. Actually, <laughs> it wasn't at all. They're none of none of those three were the easiest sell. It always looks easy after the event, doesn't it, really, if you weren't actually involved? Exactly. Well, Trudy, thank you for sharing those thoughts on properties and everything about your career. And thank you for being a guest on Living With Licensing. I hope to see you again soon. Thank you, Kelvin. Thank you. A big thank you to our sponsor, Dependable Solutions, the licensing management software specialists. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Living With Licensing, please tell your friends and colleagues.